Coming up on Tech Nation, how did all this data happen? And how long have humans been collecting it? And by who? Int, start with governments. Columbia University professors Chris Wiggins and Matthew Jones talk about how data happened. Then, one company, two drugs. Nevin Charles Elam, the founder and CEO of Resolute, tells us about their work on a diabetic eye condition called DME and a pediatric condition called congenital hyperinsulinism. In one condition, way too little insulin is produced, and in the other, way too much. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2018, I was able to speak with experimental cognitive scientist and Harvard professor Steven Pinker with his book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. Well, Stephen, welcome back to Tech Nation. Thank you. I picked up your book and I couldn't believe it. Here we are, no matter what anyone's politics are, everybody seems to be holding their head in their hands and saying, the world is in terrible shape. And you write this optimistic look at our world. Well, it's a it's a defense of progress. What will happen in the future isn't completely determined by what happened in the past. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns, as the mutual funds say. But we really ought to appreciate the progress that we've made to know what we're in danger of losing and to know what, what we should cherish, what we should intensify going forward. Well, you insist on giving us the facts. I count no fewer than 75 tables or charts, all definitively sourced, all simply presented. You might as well have named the book, What Are All You People Complaining About? <laughs> <laughs> no, I do, have, I, I do have some things that we could complain about or, or worry about. But, uh, but yeah, but we should also uh, appreciate what we've accomplished. Uh, we're, we're living longer. More of us are going to school. Uh, we're not dropping of infectious diseases. Uh, we are better entertained. We're better educated. We're richer. And by we, I don't just mean Americans and Europeans. I mean we citizens of the world. Not everyone, but many, many more uh, than just even in the recent past. You're writing about Enlightenment now, and it refers back to a period of history called the Enlightenment. Take us back there. So this is the, the period usually dated to the second half of the 18th century that had an explosion of ideas on both sides of the Atlantic that it involved the primacy of reasoning. We shouldn't accept dogma and authority and tradition and revelation and faith, but we should uh, try to figure things out, figure out how the world works. That also means science, because science is the application of reason to understanding the world. It's based on the conviction that the world is intelligible. We can figure out how it works by formulating possible hypotheses and testing them against reality. Humanism, the uh, idea that the prime moral goal for all of us should be to enhance human flourishing, to, to make people better off. Now, I mean, that may sound so obvious that it's not worth giving a, a name to, but there are alternatives such as that uh, the prime moral purpose is to obey God's commandments, to achieve a, uh, a good fate after you live in, in an afterlife, to glorify the nation or the race or the class or the faith. 
uh, to achieve feats of artistic and uh, military greatness. Uh, so the idea that we should make as many people as possible live long, healthy, happy lives is, is not as obvious as it sounds uh, to us today. Uh, and finally, the Enlightenment thinkers believed that progress was possible, that they didn't try to hark back to a golden age. They, they didn't uh, look ahead to some messianic utopia, but rather that if we apply our reason and science to improving the human condition, then bit by bit we can succeed. And, of course, you were listing sort of the counter-enlightenments. Yes, uh, that the world consists of a bunch of uh, nation-states, which are like tribes in, in competition for glory and preeminence, and, and they, they should compete, and the better one does, the worse another one will do, but that's the way it ought to be. That's that's kind of the nationalist's view of, uh, of the, the planet. But it is a distinct idea, and it's not the same as the idea that nations are kind of conveniences, constructions. They're ways that people can lead better lives. And uh, that is very much an Enlightenment ideal, that the nation is simply a, um, or especially the, the government, is just a means for people to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And indeed, it is stipulated in so many words in the Declaration of Independence. What comes first? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In order to achieve them, uh, nations are set up. Steven Pinker continues to be the John Stone Family Professor of Psychology at Harvard University. His most recent book is Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, Why It Matters. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, you may be surprised to learn that collecting, analyzing, and utilizing data has been around for centuries. Today, Columbia professors Chris Wiggins and Matthew Jones talk about how data happened, a history from the age of reason to the age of algorithms. Then it's all about glucose at Resolute, too much and too little. Nevin Charles Elam tells us about their work to treat the diabetic eye condition, DME, and a pediatric condition called congenital hyperinsulinism. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Chris Wiggins and Matt Jones. Well, Chris and Matt, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Now, let me start out by observing that one of you is the New York Times chief data scientist and an applied math professor, and the other studies the history of science and technology. Now, Columbia is a pretty big university. How did you two cross paths? Gosh, I think the first time was a lecture that Matt was giving on the history of machine learning. And uh, that was spring 2013. And I went to it, and uh, it was a great lecture. And I remember thinking, oh, well, there's a lot here about history of government mining of personal information. I don't, I don't know if really people are going to engage with that, but it's super cool. And then that was right before the Edward Snowden revelations. And so afterwards, I told Matt, Matt, you have skated towards where the puck is going to go. And uh, we ended up 
meeting through that and, and having clearly a common interest in the history of machine learning and the history of data and how people made sense of the world through data. And then somehow we ended up together teaching data journalism together. Matt, do you remember how that happened? The journalism school was starting a program where they wanted to connect uh, young journalists who wanted to use new technical tools with faculty who might be able to uh, meet them where they were and begin to teach them things about data and algorithms and to think about using those in a fairly critical manner, not a manner that automatically celebrated the technology. So they brought us together. And then coincidentally, um, I, my, my family and I, we live in the dorm here at Columbia. And so I regularly have faculty guests. And we had Chris as a faculty guest with about 20 students. And they were a mix of students from of a more humanistic kind and um, of a more engineering kind. And we were talking about our interest in the history of data science and data ethics. And they were like, you two should teach a course. Golly, we could put the play on right here. <laughs> and so it was extraordinary. We got a little bit of uh, funding, and then we began uh, a class where we taught at a small seminar, and then we wanted to bring that to a larger group of students. And so we did that for a number of years, and out of that uh, emerged the book. Well, knowing I was going to interview you and knowing I was going to read your book, but before I did, I had dinner with my friends, and I asked everyone, when do you think the earliest evidence of humans collecting data, and I should say we had some IT people there, uh, the leading answers were Rosetta Stone, Sumerian counting tablets, and marks of one, two, three, four, and across with five on the cave walls. Now, what kind of data are you talking about, and did anyone come close it's a good question. So you're right that in a history book, you got to choose some place you're going to start. And so we didn't start with the history of data, I have to say. We didn't start with the first people gathering data. It's true. Uh, people had been, you know, gathering data, for, for example, for collecting a census for long, 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 the start before the start point of the book. The starting point of the book was really around the time that people started to try to apply the scientific mindset to data. So it was, you know, the, the subtitle of the book is a history from the age of reason to the age of algorithms. We started right around the age of reason. And when a time when people were trying to take the success of mathematics for, you know, predicting where the planets are or something like that. And people started thinking, how can we take those tools, which are so powerful and use them for something really important, like society and running governments. So that dovetails nicely with the first time the word statistics appears in the English language, which is 1770. Uh, and that was really where we picked up and went off to the races was right around end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, when people started trying to put data to work, not just for counting things or for measuring the extent of your, your country or the number of people or the number of animals or something, uh, but really trying to use data to say something about society, not only as a description, but as a prescription about how society should be shaped. Of course, the goal was really to say something about present day. So we, we had to start somewhere and we we're always looking back to see what are the points where there was some intellectual transition that changed the way we think about data today. So we were interested in the contentions now, and we're interested in illuminating them by looking at how contentious it was first to say, how do you know the people of your country or the land of your country? Do you do it through qualitative measures like writing uh, philosophical treatises, or do you do it by collecting uh, numerical data? And then second bone of contention is what kind of tools do you use both to describe and to proscribe, to say how things are and what should be. We live very much in a moment of contention about this, and we were interested in when those contentions really began to pick up speed. And that's uh, at the end of the 18th century and then throughout the 19th century. 
Yeah, that's a better answer. We want to we want to have fights. So you know, for the first couple of like two thousand years, people are collecting data, but there's not a lot of people fighting around data. So so Matt's answer is a better one, which is we started the history right around the time that people started having arguments about data. But Matt, you're the historian. I got to go back to my friends. What was earlier? You know, the Rosetta Stone, the marking of the one, two, three, four, and cross on the cave, uh, and the Sumerian counting tablets. Oh, um, probably Sumerian materials are going to be among the yes. earliest. Just probably, <laughs> you, you, there might also be, uh, you know, evidence in uh, Chinese uh, tortoise shells and things like that. Um, if you want to talk about scientific data, I think a lot of the best data is going to actually be Babylonian in quality, where you have uh, a long string of astronomical numerical observations that still are important to the observational record. But it's a kind of diffuse sort of thing. And you'd find alternates, which would be when do people begin doing the sorts of things we think of a government as necessarily doing, counting people, counting resources, uh, figuring out extent of territory. And there's no question that that long predates the history we're telling, where we pick up at precisely this in intersection of a new will to count things and a new will to use these new mathematical tools that had upended the world of science and physics around the time, uh, well, throughout the 18th century. Now, you write in your book, along with data comes power, including the power to shape what is perceived to be true. And as of this recording, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has released over 40,000 hours of Capitol Police security footage to Fox News host Tucker Carlson, and only Tucker Carlson. And as of two days ago, he has aired an edited piece regarding the January 6th, uh, what we'll call it, event at the Capitol, and typified it as a peaceful protest. Is that a good example of what you mean, along with data comes power, including the power to shape what is perceived to be true? It's definitely true that information arbitrage is a type of arbitrage that gives some people a, an advantage over somebody else. In this case, it's not just that they have inf access to information other people don't have, but it comes with a certain claim to what is true. Um, and data definitely has that. So having data historically gives somebody uh, an advantage in saying that they have some special uh, knowledge about what is actually true. Of course, data itself comes with its own sort of truthiness from objectivity. Right? The fact that it's a number comes with a, a certain defense against people arguing against its validity. There's a certain way that people are hesitant to question a number as though it, just because I've quantified something, it must be true. That's another thing that we really want to get to in the book is just because you have a number doesn't mean there weren't subjective design decisions that were made in obtaining or crafting that data. To quote other thinkers, um, raw data is, is an oxymoron, right? Data is, is best fully cooked, and, and we should be open about the things that we did when we cooked the data. Yeah, and as I think about your question, you know, you think about that full extent of all that videotape testimony, like which what human is going to be able to look through that all? We are always going to need systems that are going to enable us to abridge, uh, summarize, figure out, search, and these sorts of things. And there are choices implicit in all of those. And many of those choices could lead in very dark directions. And some of those choices could illuminate. But there's not an obvious illumination. Like when Google search was invented, it was a transformative moment uh, in the late 90s. And it used various ways to identify data, I mean, uh, sources of information that seemed to be more uh, credible. But it was 
it's a very human invention. It's a very human invention to enable us. And therefore, it does end up um, providing the power to determine what one knows about various kinds of things. It's all the more pressing, the more voluminous the information we're dealing with. So um, sometimes people will say, well, couldn't we go back to a simpler time? Uh, but the fact is the influx of information, whether it's news, numerical data, um, and other sorts of things, always means that we need to come up with techniques, techniques that are both technical um, and also political and that are social for dealing with that and working together uh, with it and despite it. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guests today are Chris Wiggins and Matthew Jones. Dr. Wiggins is an associate professor of applied mathematics at Columbia University and the New York Times chief data scientist. Dr. Jones is a professor of history, also at Columbia, and has been a Guggenheim Fellow. Their book is How Data Happened, A History from the Age of Reason to the Age of Algorithms. Now, everybody wants to know, since you are a full-time professor, Chris, being the New York Times chief data scientist is a part-time job? I've been helping them since 2013. So I did a sabbatical from Columbia in the fall of 2013. And at the end of the sabbatical, I wanted to go back to Columbia and I needed to go back and teach. Uh, but I felt like there was an opportunity there because the New York Times had really just started collecting and making useful a lot of the digital engagement data. So what I suggested then and, and, and what we've been able to do since then is that I can be useful to them in helping them lead a group, but that I had to switch from writing code to writing email. So I'm, I, I have absolutely moved away from being an um, individual contributor. Instead, I have the pleasure of helping them hire a bunch of people who are themselves really leading uh, different lines of work. I, I, I don't want to claim that I'm, I'm, I'm directly being useful there and, and also the, a lot of I, just before I get into too much detail, like some of the some of my knowledge of some of the excellent machine learning work is is managerial. But yes, that's that's the way I've I've done it. Is not unlike leading a research group at Columbia is to make sure that you hire really really good people and then get out of the way. Well, I have to say it's a great part time gig. This is a wonderful one, and it started with you working really hard. But I, I think the timing of the downstroke is important for us in modern times. Was, would you say 2010, 2011 in there? It was, it was the fall of 2013. So uh, not not long after I met Matt, actually. So um, I spent a sabbatical there in the fall of 2013. And that was a time where I think several companies, including the New York Times, were starting to think about how they could put data to work. In turn, it's been really educational for my research at Columbia and certainly for the class that we've been teaching and for this book. So we need to break down the various jobs, and I'm, I'm thinking there are three. There is collecting data, uh, which historically has been extremely hard, but seems to be getting easier and easier. There's analyzing the data, which is helped, if not created, by the invention of statistics. And there's power, using data to advantage, which originally was only the prerogative of governments. Why is that? Well, you need a lot of resources to gain a lot of data, but also you need to be somebody that somebody that everyone's trust to be telling you the truth. So a lot of the earlier data that we look at was data that you required state resources in order to gather those data. Additionally, when you know, a government publishes those data, people believe it to be true. So other people could have maybe gathered small data, but you need some amount of resources, some investment in order to gather a large data set. For example, today, major companies are able to gather abundant data that powers some of the most impressive algorithms that are shaping our world today. But in the longer history, there's also moments in which 
people other than the government are able to use data to push against other powerful interests. Um, and the most famous one, perhaps, that we give an example of is that there was a real change in the way pharmaceuticals were regulated in the United States in the 1960s, in which a fairly then-powerful, then as now, powerful pharmaceutical lobby uh, resisted the idea that the way to gauge the accuracy, the, the, the efficacy of medications uh, was going to be through uh, some sort of statistical trial. So statistical trials ended up uh, winning out and becoming the gold standard. So it's, an, it's not a picture where it's always already existing powerful elements imposing data, but it's many different elements drawing upon the power of data. In many cases, very large entities as today that uh, have the preponderance of that power. Now, I love the introduction, or rather prologue, to your book, and I love that your professors and professors have students, and I love especially the first vignette. Can we talk about Facebook now, Chris? If you'd restate that story, it is, it happens to every professor, but it's, it's very pertinent to this book. It really happened. So I was telling, I was at a chalkboard telling a story to a very small group. It wasn't a big lecture class yet. It was still a seminar. A very small group about an example where somebody was able to get their hands on some data. Uh, the Belgian astronomer, Catlay, who managed to get a bunch of data about the, the diameter of the chest sizes of Scottish soldiers, right? So this is data collected by the state, particularly in this case, the Scottish army. And Catlay looked at these numbers and he saw a curve the, which we now call the bell curve, that reminded him of a curve that he knew well from astronomy. And then he interpreted it to mean that there must exist an ideal Scottish soldier of whom all of these real soldiers are some sort of imperfect variants. So it's a very heady thought, and it requires you to uh, make a deep um, reification, as they say in academia, the, the, the making real of a concept. However, that happened to be the same morning that Mark Zuckerberg was testifying before Congress. So as much as I wanted to talk about fancy math and reification, the, the students really wanted to talk about what on earth was happening when our elected officials were grilling this, you know, the young man who created the product that was shaping all of their realities and, and was being called to task for it. So um, it was a good... It pivot, a, pivot, time to pivot. Yeah, well, it was, a good, it was a good moment about how we've tried to construct a book and a history that constantly is illuminating our present day and what our present day is about and, and how it's all moving forward and, and what we will all do to shape the future. But, you know, we, we try, and it was one of the lessons for us about how we always need to be reminding students how whatever we're talking about is related to how data happened, right? Which means not only technologies, but also our norms, how it is that we think about data the way we think about data. In any event, it's true. We stopped talking about Ketley for that day and just started talking about Facebook. Now, in that story in the book, you related that these, you know, these young younger students, if you will, um, they weren't. It wasn't just about data. They had lived in an age in which the algorithm is just as important as the data. Let's go there. Yeah. So part of the story of how data happened is not just about collecting numbers. It's also about how, I would say, particularly after World War II. Uh, we've developed special purpose hardware and computation just for making sense of data, just for making sense usually of streams of messy real-world data. And then more recently, the methods for making sense of data have been instantiated as products, and those products are um, developed, deployed, and maintained by private companies. So part of the, the present moment that we wanted to get to in all of this history 
is is the present moment in which we have private companies and and powerful statistical algorithms that are shaping our professional, political, and personal realities. So that sort of uh, that sort of use of of statistical algorithms deployed as products is part of the present milieu that we most wanted to get to. And and I'll credit the students for that. So we we started in 2015 thinking, oh, let's teach a class on the history of data science. But really, once we started teaching the class, it was the students who pushed us to think more about the ethics and impact of data-driven algorithms today. Yep, it really did. The students pushed us to integrate those concerns about power uh, from the very beginning of the class to the end. And so we end up the story we tell is very much that isn't a, a straightforward linear story. It's not obvious what kind of statistics is going to work, and it's not obvious what kind of statistics is going to empower uh, the state, is going to empower the war effort in World War II. And it's not obvious what kind of uh, approaches are going to produce human-like intelligent decision-making. Um, none of this is is sort of obvious, but all of it's on a platform of arguing about what kind of technologies can enable or disable different forms of power. Now, for some people who keep saying, well, algorithm, I'm not sure what you're talking about. Algorithm is actually the procedure by which you're going to do something. It ends up being coded in many different programs, um, in many different devices, in many different uh, computers. And for computer scientists, exactly, what you would do is you want to talk about the algorithm because it doesn't matter whether it's on a Mac or an iPhone or uh some huge computer. It's like, that's how we're doing it. So algorithm brings it back to, well, that's that's how we're doing it, wherever it is implemented, however it's implemented. And I guess then I go to, can algorithms be intrinsically ethical or unethical? It's an excellent question. So one of the things I sometimes say in my group at the data science group at the New York Times is we tend to talk about the ethics of a decision made by a human being rather than the ethics of a model or the ethics of an algorithm. And in part, that's because we want to keep the conversation centered on who has the agency. And I don't want people to anthropomorphize an algorithm such that they forget that a human being made a decision. And so I try to think about ethics as being an adjective that models that modifies decisions, decisions made by people. Is that an ethical decision? So the decision might be to use an algorithm, or the decision might be to, to develop a model and then to implement that model as a product. But um, keeping the adjective ethics focused on decisions, I think reminds us that it's it's people with agency who are we are looking to, to 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 define what is ethical rather than abstracting it away to give ethics to an object or an algorithm. And one of the things about the scope of the the things that we call algorithms today, these models that make very large decisions, like what kind of videos are you uh, recommended on YouTube, or uh, decisions about incarceration, say in some cases, is that you have a sort of set of instructions, but those set of instructions are connected to a huge amount of data that is filled with uh, historical information about people, about the differences, uh, uh, and, and often tracks very precisely uh, historical injustice. And many algorithms, um, as a result, uh, rather trivially, will reproduce um, facets of those historical injustice because it's the, the, it is the product of, of human history and human decision making about uh, those sorts of things. So the, the, it, the, it takes a particular form. It's not that there's uh, necessarily a radical subjectivity of the algorithm itself, but these algorithms become important precisely when they are, uh, as computer scientists say, trained on large bodies of data which are very human and very biased and very often problematic.
I'm speaking with Chris Wiggins and Matthew Jones. Their book is How Data Happened, a history from the age of reason to the age of algorithms. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of the Whole Tech Nation program and standalone biotech-only segments are available through your favorite podcaster, as well as at technation.com and biotechnation.com. In the second half of our show, Nevin Charles Elam from Resolute talks about efforts to improve treatments from diabetic blindness and a pediatric condition where too much insulin is being produced from day one. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Columbia University professors Chris Wiggins and Matthew Jones. Their book is How Data Happened, a history from the age of reason to the age of algorithms. Now, with technology today, data is now in the hands of pretty much everyone. And you write that today, the most important present contests, and this is where the power comes in, are among corporate power, state power, and people power. We talked about the first two, corporate power and state power. Let's talk about people power. So that's definitely part of my job as an engineering educator is, is training young people who are going to become future software engineers and future data scientists. And so I really want them to think about how their individual decisions are empowering these companies. Um, all of us, though, who are users of these products um, are giving data to private companies and sometimes giving money to private companies. And we should think about, are we contributing to um, enterprises that we want to support and that we think are ultimately in our best interest? But p particularly for software engineers and data scientists who are going to these companies, they actually have tremendous impact on those companies. Uh, they're, they're extremely valued by these companies. Uh, and when they act in ways that shape the product and, again, make ethical decisions in the, in the direction of a, a product, I think they can have a big impact on, on society. One of the things about algorithms that are different than people is they scale, right? So algorithms implemented as software scale up and, and can impact, you know, thousands or millions of people. And so there's, there is a power associated with that and, 
as they say, therefore comes with great responsibility. And I think we, we use that very general term, people power, because we wanted to capture a range of things. We wanted to capture the kind of people working in the tech industry. We wanted to capture traditional political action, uh, people, act, people just being users, um, and also people working in the market. Um, and our sense is there's not one sort of royal road to setting things right. But um, it's going to be a variety of coalitions and people acting in these various facets that we all do as individuals and, and different kinds of solidarities. Um, so solidarities as voters, solidarities as users, solidarities as purchasers, and solidarities as, as uh, people working um, in, in firms or at universities or elsewhere. That's a good point. Is that the last chapter is trying to make the point that there's not just going to be one solution available to us. Some people, when they look at you know problems with technology, they say, oh, well, the government should fix this or private companies should fix this. But we wanted to try to enumerate all the different uh, ways that the forces are in an unstable relationship with each other uh, to try to illustrate where the contests are and, and where the possibilities are. Now, Matt, I want to ask you, uh, from an historical perspective, is it fair to say there is no precedent for the situation we're in today in human history? Oh, that's always a big challenge for a historian. Um, I would say there has never been uh, such a moment in which there's anything like uh, a, a small set of very large uh, entities with this level of control of the information landscape. There are precedents of various kinds that are important. The, um, you know, the large, uh, the, 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 can, you know, the coming together into a small number of firms of really unprecedented power does have echoes of earlier mo of earlier moments, um, in, uh, in, in corporate history. Um, the idea that we're living through a period of, uh, of, of deep concern about where the truth can be found and who to trust um, has echoes particularly of the period between World War One and World War Two. So it's not that it's there's nothing that is in the past, but there's a particular coming together of these elements at a scale uh, I, that we've never before seen. So it's unprecedented in that way, but it has important precedents that we can draw a lot of, I think, important lessons for thinking about what forms of, of, uh, of contestation and what forms of building we might want to do to provide better solutions. And yet history is not without its lessons. What might history teach us about today? Well, so one of the things we really want to get across in the history is that there are choices that are made, and these choices which are made on the basis of data, but also on the basis of different kinds of science and technologies to implement. The science and technology don't tell us how they need to be implemented. They don't say how our policy should be devised. For example, um, there's nothing inherent in the internet that says that it really shouldn't have very much privacy protections, that, that, it, 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 that it should be allowed to be free, and that's what allows an, an, an advertising system based on uh, surveillance to approach that. Uh, th that's, that doesn't follow. But the technologies themselves call for the law to be changed, but they don't say how the law should be changed. You know, I want to ask both of you, or I should say each of you, uh, of the privileges we have as professors is that we do get to hear from students, you know, who are often in their 20s. So we'll just put that as a general 
milieu here. Uh, what are they thinking? What have they said, beside the, the example we gave earlier, that has either surprised you or guided you in, in recent years or months? Well, one thing was this observation that we started teaching this class as an intellectual class and a class about technology, and the students really pushed us to think about ethics and power. Um, the other thing I would say is they really wanted to hear from varied voices. You know, they really wanted to hear about hidden labor and and the way that the history of technology sort of glosses over the people who did a lot of difficult work. Uh, sometimes one way to think about it is when things are easy for you, there's a conservation of difficulty. Sometimes it means somebody else worked really hard to make life really easy for you. So, for example, when we talk about the history of, of computation, we start at Bletchley Park. Bletchley Park is a place where people started in the United Kingdom during World War II working on code breaking. Some of the first special purpose hardware was being built, and you had uh, huts, small buildings of mathematicians who were completely male. Uh, and the really difficult work, the engineering work, was immediately gendered and given to the women to do the really difficult engineering work, and it was devalued in ways that were there at the very birth of digital computation. So um, I think that's part of the story that the students encouraged us to think more deeply about is um, what are the sort of um, contested parts that the traditional history of technology sometimes glosses over? And we had students uh, both coming at us from sort of doing a, a computer science degree. And we had students who were really grounded in the humanities. And we brought them together in the same classroom. And this was deliberate. And it doesn't always work because they need different kinds of assignments. They have different sets of competencies. Um, but all of them were really uh, in, really pushing for us to, initially, they wanted us to be providing answers. And we always resisted giving easy answers. Now, the truth of the matter is we, don't, of course, don't have the answers, right? <laughs> don't tell them that. <laughs> Toolboxes. No. Um, really, they need a, they need a variety of, of capabilities that come out of this for reflection upon these kinds of things. And um, the, 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 ref, the reflection that they enhanced in, in, in every case is both to think more critically about those things that are technological and to think, as Chris was just elaborating, more carefully about the social and the political, to think more uh, carefully, because it's out of that that the hope that they have as young people looking to go and do really uh, major things in the world, that they want to be, uh, they want to drive that hope with, uh, with deep practical knowledge, um, both of how to think about technology um, uh, and, and what to do about technology. And that's really what they called for us to provide. And we attempted to, uh, by engaging with them, to provide. Well, we haven't talked about Bletchley Park. We could do a whole show on that. We could. Uh, we haven't talked about Bell Labs or John McCarthy or how artificial intelligence rose and fell and became machine learning, and there's a whole bunch else in there. And so I want to thank you for coming in, but also I do hope you'll come back and join us again. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we'd love to be back. Thank you for having us. My guests today are Columbia professors Chris Wiggins and Matthew Jones. Their book is How Data Happened, A History from the Age of Reason to the Age of Algorithms. It's published by W.W. W. Norton. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Glucose is essential for life. 
and the insulin we produce is designed to leave just the right amount in our bodies for healthy functioning. Thus, when we underproduce insulin or we overproduce it, the results can be devastating. Nevin Charles Elam is the founder and CEO of Resolute. Nevin, welcome to Tech Nation. Hi, Maura. Thank you for having me. Now, we're going to talk about two different drugs today, and I mean two very different drugs for two different patient populations, but they're both addressing conditions which occur when a single normal body function goes awry. So let's start there. What function in a healthy body are we talking about? And of the many things that can happen, what two different ways can they go awry? What we're really talking about uh, in this case is glucose. And glucose is, of course, derived from everything that we eat. And how it can go awry is we can either have too much glucose in our body or, in some rare conditions, we can have too little glucose, which then starves the body of energy. And so at Resolute, we are working on two different programs on opposite ends of this glucose problem. In the case of too much, gli- in the case of too much glucose, it's really diabetes. And I think, as we all know, diabetes is an epidemic in the U.S. And it, the problem persists throughout the body with too much glucose as the vasculature is corrupted. Whether if you think about the extremities and things like foot ulcers, or if you think about kidney problems, um, and also your vision. So it turns out that with that corruption of the vasculature, with the glucose making your blood vessels very leaky, it even happens at the back of the eye. And initially what happens is fluid leaks into the retina and then into your central vision, leading to blurry vision, floaters, and if left untreated, blindness. In fact, diabetes-associated eye conditions are the leading cause of blindness in the U.S. today and elsewhere. On the opposite end of the spectrum, there can be the underproduction of glucose in very rare conditions where insulin is overproduced. And so if the body overproduces insulin, it tells your cells, liver, fat, and muscle, to uptake all of the available glucose. And unfortunately, that starves the brain of glucose. And the brain necessarily uses a lot of glucose. In fact, up to 50% or more of our glucose is used by the brain. In these rare conditions, often they begin at birth and can lead to not just brain damage, but if left untreated, can lead to stroke and eventually death. A very, very serious uh, condition that we see in childhood. Now, the pediatric condition, this is called congenital hyperinsulinism. What is that like for the family? Yeah, um, congenital hyperinsulinism, this rare condition which affects single-digit thousands of uh, children uh, as well as in Europe and, and the U.S. In, in some cases in the world, it's, it's higher. Um, but this is a nightmare disease. If you can imagine as a parent where 24 hours a day from birth, you are obsessed with making sure that your child has enough available glucose, meaning you're constantly feeding Um, using intervention with dextrose or glucose to hopefully keep your child's blood sugar levels above the normal range. And invariably, it leads to a lot of difficulties, particularly overnight. So it's not just checking during the day, checking at school, but two in the morning, four in the morning, six in the morning. And unfortunately, we don't really have a therapy that's been developed to treat this disease. 
And that's led to a, a lot of complications for physicians and, of course, as well as the families. Well, let's start with the diabetic eye condition. It's called DME, diabetic macular edema. What is the current treatment for that, and, and what are you doing there? So for uh, diabetic-related eye conditions, and in particular diabetic macular edema, over the last 50 years, there's really been a couple of options. Um, back in the 1970s, we used lasers. And those have largely been replaced by injecting different therapies directly into the eye. And in particular, in the last 15 to 20 years, uh, these therapies uh, are used monthly as the gold standard uh, to be able to get the necessary medicine into the patient's eye. And given the painful route of administration, I think it goes without saying, you know, it's literally a needle into your eye. Given that route of administration, it has led to some poor compliance because what happens is the gold standard is monthly injections, but often physicians and patients will stagger their injections. And that then leads to, to bad outcomes. In addition, it turns out that these injections are only active or only work in about 50% of the patients that are actually suffering with DME. Now, what are you doing? And so what we've done here at Resolute is we've taken a very different approach. We've taken an approach that looks at the body really holistically. And we, given that it is diabetes, and what's happening throughout the entire body is that corruption of the vasculature. And we believe that a systemic approach is the, the right approach to bathe the entire system with a therapy, including at the back of the eye, to be able to stop that leakage and uh, prevent it in the future. So that's led for us, led us to develop an oral therapy. Uh, so we have a once daily tablet uh, that we believe as a very different pathway than the injections into the eye that has the potential to be highly effective in patients. Now, you've just started a new phase two global trial. I know it's in, in Europe and in the U.S. Tell us about that trial. How many patients are you looking at? What are you doing? How does it work? Yeah, we recently began uh, at the end of 2022 a uh, phase two study in the U.S. looking at 100 patients at about 25 different sites including sites with some of the key opinion leaders, retinal specialists. And we're studying three different dose levels in a placebo-controlled study where we want to see with patients that are newly diagnosed with diabetic macular edema, whether our tablet will be effective over three months of daily dosing at reducing that swelling that we see that occurs in the eye, as well as seeing some improvement in vision. The study itself will go throughout 2023, and we expect to be able to announce the results in the first quarter of 2024. Now, you're saying systemic. You know, you take a pill, yes, it goes to your whole system. What does it do that just taking your insulin and lowering your blood sugar doesn't do? And, and where does it do it all over the system? So our oral therapy is really looking to reduce the inflammatory response. And what happens when you have diabetes is there's a massive inflammatory response throughout the body. Sometimes that can be helpful, but when it's overactivated, it's not helpful and can lead to destruction of your blood vessels and cause other conditions. 
And so our therapy actually tamps down that response such that the inflammatory response is reduced, allows for more normal functioning of your blood vessels and uh, allows for improved vision and the reduction in swelling. But this is true throughout your body. Could it possibly help other conditions associated here? That's a great point, Moira. And we are looking at a few things in this initial study, um, but that's beyond the scope of our study for the eye, but definitely a point of curiosity, given the other challenges and complications that patients with diabetes suffer from. There may be some other benefits, and over time, as we continue clinical studies, we'll definitely be looking at that. Now, let's quickly go to the other drug, the one that treats the pediatric conditions. I understand you're beginning phase three clinical trials now. Tell us what you're doing there. Yes, we are. We plan to initiate phase three studies for congenital hyperinsulinism with our antibody therapy mid this year in 2023. And this is really to dose children for a longer period of time uh, to see whether we can control their glucose levels, as we've saw in earlier uh, clinical studies, but in phase three, of course, in the most robust environment. And so we anticipate dosing these children over a series of months, and then again, measuring their glucose. And if we achieve the results that we've seen in prior studies, we believe it can lead to an approval for the therapy. And finally, most importantly, uh, a chance for you know the children in these families to have something that's effective um, that can really change and impact their lives. We've heard just anecdotally from patients uh, and their families of the changes that they've experienced when they've been on the therapy. Things like my child never had an appetite and woke up hungry. My child slept through the night. Um, these types of soft outcomes are very important in addition to just looking at their glucose values because this really is a psychosocial issue for these children and for their families and caregivers. Now, that anecdotal evidence was coming from your phase two study, I presume. That's absolutely correct. And, you know, we hope to replicate those results um, and, and even a, a greater number of patients in, in a robust study fashion that would justify approval of the therapy. Now, how do you take this therapy? Because after all, it's hard, hard to get a, a baby to take a pill. As an example, <laughs> how do you get this antibody in? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you, you definitely, a, a pill wouldn't work here. And for this, for this therapy, it's actually a 30-minute infusion uh, that we actually deliver. And so, if you, as you can imagine, in the hospital, when these patients are most vulnerable, that is particularly useful because you know you're getting the drug into uh, the, the child. And then past that, as the child gets older, there's the maintenance therapy that they would take for the 30-minute infusion. So you anticipate having to provide this perhaps over their lifetime? You know, it, it depends on the on the child. Um, we, we kind of think of the therapy as for about 15 to 18 years. It could be more, it could be less. No one really knows biologically what happens, but these children are overproducing insulin. And as a result of, you know, at least a dozen or more genetic causes, and the pancreas just may burn itself out by producing all of this insulin, such that at some point, whether the individual's 18 or 20 or 30 years of age, the insulin is not overproduced and they can resume a more normal life. 
So we've seen cases where a child may be you know, preteen and it may resolve. We also know that there are individuals who are in their 40s or 50s that still have out of control hyperglycemia. Back to the diabetes, um, I'm struck by the fact that one out of 10 Americans have diabetes. In seniors, one out of three. Millions and millions of Americans, and I'm not even talking about across the world, many of these Americans, as I understand it, are either undiagnosed or lack the resources uh, or accessibility to medical care, which in itself can lead to blindness. And yet your diabetic eye treatment is a new drug. New drugs are expensive. You know that you have to pay for the clinical trials. You have to pay for all of these things. How are these drugs going to get to the people who need them at a price that they can afford? It's a great point, Moira, and completely agree with you with respect to, you know, really the problem in diabetes, where if you take individuals who have high blood sugars uh, and are trending towards diabetes, as well as those with full-blown diabetes, it's about 40% of the U.S. population, which is staggering. And of that, we know that about 1.5 million have very serious uh, eye disease, eye complications as a result with their diabetes. And drug development is definitely expensive. And I think every pharmaceutical company will acknowledge that. However, here we have a true paradigm shift. Today, we have a treatment, the injections into the eye that have to be done by a retinal specialist at a specialized center uh, involving very highly trained uh, individuals. Uh, you have uh, a patient that comes in and for at least 10 to 12 hours of the day, they're out of commission after that injection, which is often very painful. Often that means that someone has to bring them to the clinic for that injection. So there is a cost or a burden that is very significant in the overall healthcare system, as well as in productivity. With an oral therapy, it's a complete shift in the way we think about it because an oral therapy will be much cheaper than what we would experience today with the injections into the eye. It does not require a specialist. You can take a pill anywhere. And that's what had us push to actually drive and develop this therapy and to get it into the clinic because it's not just a question of convenience or compliance, but it's really a question of access. So when we think about the population in the U.S. and beyond, uh, there's a massive underserved population which disproportionately suffer with diabetes and as a consequence with diabetic macular edema. And we want to make sure all of those patients can actually get that therapy. And what we know today is that it's very challenging to get retinal specialists into certain areas that are underserved uh, and to be able to deliver that therapy and for those patients to be willing to actually endure the injections into the eye. In fact, our head of ophthalmological development here at Resolute has started uh, something called Retina Global, which is a nonprofit, which he and other retinal specialists travel both in the U.S. as well as all over the world to try to deliver therapies. And what has him excited as well as I think all of us is if we actually envision a tablet that any patient could take that drastically improves the landscape and the potential to protect vision for these patients. So the very idea that it's a pill that doesn't need to be refrigerated, that could be produced again and again and again, that can be sent anywhere, that is self-administered, it's the, it's, that's the nature of a pill, is self-administered, that brings the cost way, way down. Uh, 
Is that where we're going here? That's exactly right, Moira. And it's the opposite, I think, of the story that we usually think of with pharmaceutical companies. I think a lot of us in the U.S. and worldwide think of just the massive profits that pharmaceutical companies derive. But in fact, there can be true innovation, which not only changes the paradigm and improves outcomes, but reduce the overall financial burden on the healthcare system. And we believe that our therapy here actually has that potential. Now, finally, I have to tell you that I read a lot of biotech websites. And I mentioned that to you earlier in the pre-interview. And I tell you that I don't understand a lot of what I'm reading. It's just like, what is all this on all these biotech websites? (laughs) But I understood yours. I couldn't believe it. And I mentioned it to you and you said, oh, that's no surprise. Uh, We use the Aunt Margaret and Uncle Fred rule. Okay. What's the Aunt Margaret and Uncle Fred rule? Ah, yes. The the, the magic rule in science or really in anything, whether you're talking about quantum computing, uh, anything complex, the human body, enzymes and proteins and pathways, the rule is very simple. And uh, the rule I have with the physicians that work on the team, as well as the scientists, is that you have to be able to explain the biology and explain what we're doing in a way that Aunt Margaret and Uncle Fred, with a basic high school education like most of us have, can understand exactly what you're talking about. And so it leads to a lot of iterations for whether it's on slides, on the language we use on the website, uh, as well uh, as in general for presentations. And so I think we pride ourselves on being able to effectively communicate uh, otherwise very complex ideas. Well, uh, Nevin, thank you so much for joining me. I I hope you come back and keep us updated. Maura, thank you very much for for having me and enjoy having the opportunity to share a little bit about what we're doing at Resolute. Nevin Charles Elam is the founder and CEO of Resolute. More information is available at ResoluteBio.com. That's Resolute with a Z. R-E-Z-O-L-U-T-E, ResoluteBio.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and Biotechnation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.